Hello, I'm Peter Shane, and I'm excited to welcome you to Episode 4 of Democracy's Chief Executive, a podcast about law and the American presidency. On this episode, we're going to try to shed light on these things called executive orders. We seem to hear about them more and more. You may recall Trump's Muslim ban as an executive order. Prior presidents had issued executive orders imposing non-discrimination requirements on federal contractors. Can presidents run the government or the country through executive orders? To help get at that question, I'm thrilled to be sitting in the studio today with my co-host, Jillian Metzger. Jillian is the Harlan Fisk Stone Professor of Constitutional Law at Columbia Law School, and she directs the school's Center for Constitutional Governance. Not only is her professorship named for a Supreme Court justice, but she clerked for one, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Jillian also clerked for another one of my role models, Patricia Wald, who was chief judge on the D.C. Circuit. Jillian is one of the country's leading administrative law scholars, and I'm proud to say she's a friend, an occasional collaborator in writing briefs where we try to get courts to do the right thing. Jillian, would you please introduce our two fabulous guests Thanks. Thanks very much, Peter. I'm delighted to be here. I'm particularly delighted to be also with our guest today. Andrew Rudolevich is the chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies and the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. He is a prolific author and has written a book which is exactly on topic by executive order. And he's written several others and edited a gazillion more. Kate Shaw is a professor of law at Cardozo Law School. She is also a prolific author, and she is a leading commentator on American law and the Supreme Court, serving as a Supreme Court contributor for ABC News and one of the founding co-hosts of the Amazing Strict Scrutiny podcast. And she also worked in the White House Counsel's Office during the Obama administration. We couldn't really have two better people to help advise us. Exactly. So why don't you go ahead and get them started? Sure. So, Andy, I love your book. I want to get that on the table to begin with. It is so incredibly useful and informative. Um, uh, But I'm going to begin by asking you a basic question. What exactly is an executive order? How does it differ from the other kinds of statements that a president might make, like a proclamation or a memo? And where do presidents get the power to issue these things called executive orders? Great. Well, thanks for having me here, and especially in such august company. I'm looking very much forward to the conversation. Well, an executive order is, in maybe its simplest terms, an order by the president to the executive branch. It's formal. It is in written form. It is published in the Federal Register as a matter of law. And effectively, because it is directed to the executive branch, it affects private individuals only indirectly. We can talk a little bit about how that might happen. But generally, it is an expression of the president's uh, executive power as vested in the president by the first sentence of Article 2 of the Constitution. There's nothing specific about executive orders in the Constitution otherwise, but every president has issued some kind of directive using that effectively inherent executive authority to control the executive branch, or at least to try to do so. Executive orders, I would say, and uh, this is an area where there's a lot of spillover between what's in an executive order and a memorandum and a proclamation and so forth, but I'd say differs largely in the audience, right? The executive orders are directed at the 
executive branch, and again, grounded in either direct language in the Constitution or in statutorily delegated powers from Congress, authority from Congress. A proclamation, also formal document that's published in the Federal Register, is uh, directed at the wider public. It's proclaiming something, perhaps a state of emergency. A memorandum, it's a memo, right, to Secretary so-and-so from Joe Biden. I think you should look at this. You ought to do that. Maybe you should issue a regulation. And so in that sense, rather than relying on the president's direct authority, it's asking a member of the cabinet to use their authority to act. And again, these are differences that are a little fuzzy on the edges for sure. And uh, even presidents get mixed up when they're talking about executive orders versus memoranda, say. You'll hear plenty of talk about President Obama's executive order on DACA, for example, which was not an executive order. And so, you know, some of these directives are actually channeled through the secretaries or head of agencies directly. But in general, you have this class of directives. President is trying to get the executive branch to act in a certain way. An executive order is a really important vehicle for doing that. Kate, as a uh... Jillian mentioned you were in the White House Counsel's Office. Is your understanding of you know what an executive order is the same as Andy's? And uh, how do they get written? How do they get developed? Thanks, Peter. I do think that you know Andy is an expert on this, and I do think that that description basically aligns with my experience inside the White House Counsel's Office, sort of working on executive orders and presidential memoranda and proclamations. At a baseline level, I think the legal effect of the three is essentially interchangeable. So I think that's one important point. But I do think that as a matter of custom and practice, they are deployed in different situations and under different circumstances. And sometimes a statute will actually allow that a president can, by, say, proclamation, do X. And if the president is going to take that action, it will be done in the form of a document that is captioned a proclamation to align with a statutory directive. But essentially, this is a difference in degree, not kind. And I'm not sure everyone even agrees on how this degree difference really works. But, you know, they are directives from the president typically directed to some subordinate official inside the executive branch, and they command some action be taken. In terms of your process question, Peter, so yes, I think every president absolutely makes up their own process with respect to the issuance of all of these forms of presidential direction. There are essentially no enforceable procedural requirements with respect to how a president is going to go about crafting any of these. I mean, it is true that at the end of the process, they are subject to publication in the Federal Register. But everything before that, the presidency, I think, is an inherently dynamic institution. And that is, of course, true when it comes to substantive policy agendas. But I think it's true to a degree when it comes to sort of structure and process as well. And Andy's book, I think, beautifully walks through this, right? Some executive orders originate inside the White House, in the White House Counsel's Office or other White House entities. Some of them originate inside agencies. I think there is a tendency sometimes to kind of keep close inside the White House really sensitive matters that are going to be the subject of an executive order. Once you send something out to the agencies for consultation and drafting, there's more of a chance of leaking. Things become subject to the Freedom of Information Act. And so I think it very much depends on the subject matter of the particular directive. But however it originates, right, once there's a draft, there is typically a clearance process of circulating the document to kind of relevant entities within the executive branch. But if this is like federal personnel related, the Office of Personnel Management would be a really important entity to weigh in if they hadn't already had a hand in the drafting. If this has to do with healthcare, HHS would need to be intimately involved either, again, at the drafting stage or once there is a draft in circulation. Peter, you could probably speak to the OMB side of the circulation process. But 
whatever the origination story is and however precisely the path of circulation unfolds, there is a process of consultation within the executive branch before the president actually signs the document and it issues into the world. And maybe one other thing I will note about the prehistory of these documents before they you know, even begin circulating inside agencies is that I think something that's pretty interesting is that in the modern era, at least, there is a pretty robust practice of new presidents issuing a number of important executive orders or other kinds of presidential directives in the first, either on the first day or in the first couple of days or week of an administration. And when that happens... I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, those get drafted during the transition before there is a formal office of the presidency at all. It's the office of the president-elect. The fact that it happens outside of the formal structures of government altogether, although typically or, you know, in my experience, always in consultation with the Office of Legal Counsel. So conversations between the incoming administration and OLC will, you know, invariably happen around draft executive orders. But I think the fact that, again, it's not even part of a formal government operation much of the time that sort of gives rise to these really important first day or first week executive orders, I think is kind of reflective of just how much variation there is in the process by which uh, these orders get drafted. So It sounds like they go through a lot of hands, typically. It's not just the president sitting down to write something, him or herself. Those who have faithfully listened to the podcast from episode one will know that when you say OLC or the Office of Legal Counsel, you're referring to an office in the Department of Justice that advises the White House and the rest of the executive branch on some sensitive matters. Andy said, you say that these are directions to the rest of the executive branch. How much can a president actually make agencies do? I mean, Donald Trump used to like to pose with, you know, he would hold up to the camera this executive order he had signed and basically say, Obamacare is over, or the wall is built, or, you know, regulation as we know it is gone. That didn't seem to happen. Andy? Well, you are limited by what the powers of the presidency actually are, and the president doesn't make law. So if a statute says the president can do X, the president can use an executive order to get then a department or agency to do X. If it says the president can't do X, then that executive order, no matter what it may say on paper, is not going to be effective. Of course, most of the action of government takes place in the spaces between you can do X and you can't do X. Maybe you can do X. What does it actually mean? So, you know, for example, President Trump in his first week in office issued his travel ban executive order, which, by the way, relevant to one of Kate's points, was issued as an executive order, even though the statute says it should be a proclamation, which gives you a sense of how much vetting went on regarding that executive order. They had apparently not looked at the statute itself. By the time you got to the third iteration, of that directive. It was in the form of a proclamation. This is the form that got upheld by the Supreme Court. But that directive over the course of its life before reaching the Supreme Court was subject to all kinds of questioning as to whether the president had the power under the Immigration and Nationality Act to prevent certain groups from entering the country. Was that something the president could do? Ultimately, the Supreme Court read the statute, said, yeah, that's really broad. And the president can do that. But that's not always going to be the case. So you have this room where the president has the authority to act, is choosing a part of this vague statutory language to focus on. You see this in environmental legislation all the time. Often they're relying on legislation that's several decades old, given Congress's inability to update the statute books. And so a lot of this action really is in how the current administration wants to interpret vague statute 
and push the agencies towards doing it. Now, whether the agencies do it at that point is another question that gets into the huge field of bureaucratic politics. But in terms of the president's authority to act, that's where it begins. Can I actually follow up there, Andy? Because one of the things I think is interesting is executive orders speaking to officials in the executive branch. What is a president trying to do with an executive order or signal by making it an executive order rather than sort of an informal conversation between White House staff and the head of the agency that differentiates them, right? I mean, it it seems like there's also a public claiming aspect that might be playing a role here and that a president, it's, it's sort of serving multiple audiences in one go. Is that your sense? Yeah. And I'd like to hear Kate sort of intra-White House thoughts on this as to how the decisions are made. Because certainly, if you look at some executive orders, they're clearly effectively plans to make plans, right? President Biden has ordered via executive order the ending of racism, climate change, recently, you know, restoration of reproductive rights, right? Really big stuff that some of which the federal government can do some of which you would need to think pretty hard about how to do it. And you put that in executive order, effectively, you're saying to the agencies, let's figure out how to do this. But that's not exactly how you present the order, right? You are actually saying, I have taken dramatic action today to stem climate change. So that's one option, right? Is that you are, in fact, using it as a marker. You're showing that it's your priority as administration. That does send a signal to the wider executive branch, I think, in a way that perhaps a quiet phone call to the head of EPA might not do. But it is certainly true, I think, that lots of stuff that winds up in executive orders could be done much less publicly and formally. But there is an aspect. Peter mentioned, you know, President Trump's love of holding up his large Sharpie signature for the cameras, you know, a sense of I am acting, I am leading, hear me roar. And I think that does matter. And some of the language within executive orders, in fact, does have, I would say, hortatory effect as opposed to legally effective language. I mean, some of it, it seems to be indistinguishable from a press release in some ways. Kate, was that your experience as well? No, I'd love to jump in. I mean, I do think that there's absolutely, as Jillian alludes to, a rhetorical and kind of communicative and aspirational dimension to basically every executive order. Some of them are mostly that. Some of them are mostly something else, but a little bit that. But I actually kind of wanted to take a step back for a moment and just to respond. I mean, I'm a little bit loath to disagree with Andy's core claim that executive orders aren't law. He wrote the book on executive orders, and I'm just like a former executive branch lawyer. But to my mind, I do think it's fair to think of them as presidential law, right? And this is kind of despite the famous Youngstown line that Andy was sort of channeling, which is that the Constitution's instruction that the president take care that the laws be faithfully executed refutes the idea that he is to be a lawmaker. So that's there. The Supreme Court has said that. And yet I do think the president is making law through executive orders. Now, He is mostly doing that by issuing directives to subordinate officials within the executive branch and by identifying goals those officials should pursue or effectuate in carrying out those goals and directives. But I just don't know that it's right to conceive of that as kind of purely rhetorical or pure management or supervision. The president is absolutely exercising the supervisory power and directive power. But I think there's just a range in terms of how internally focused the actual on-the-ground effect of an executive order will be. So Andy alluded to a couple of these Biden day one executive orders on ensuring racial equity and justice and the provision of services to underserved communities, right? That was a day one executive order that was really about telling agency officials to do a top-to-bottom review of the programs and policies that they implement to sort of figure out how issues of racial justice and equity were actually being implemented or were absent from everything the agency did on a day-to-day basis. And that was true about kind of the restoration of a focus on 
climate and a return to kind of the role of science in government. So these are important, largely internal executive orders that Biden issued on day one. But I'm thinking about executive orders that President Obama issued when I was in the White House. And, and, and one that came to mind was a small one in certain respects in that it was an executive order on hospital visitation that grew out of this episode in which a gravely ill woman in Florida had been denied the ability to see her same-sex partner as she was dying. And the president issued an executive order that basically said hospitals that receive federal funds can't deny access to partners on the basis of sexual orientation or other characteristics. And it was kind of framed as that's an important goal and HHS figure out how to develop guidelines to carry that out. And of course, it contained, as all executive orders do, language about to the extent possible within existing law and as authorized by you know statute or the constitution. But that wasn't just rhetorical and it wasn't just internal. Intermediate steps were required before the full legal effect was felt by non-government actors, right, by third parties, by institutions and individuals. But I'm not sure that makes it not law. And again, as Andy said, early on, all this happens within, obviously, the context of a statutory framework. But also, statutes have lots of gray areas and gaps and interstices. And that's where a lot of presidential lawmaking occurs. I want to absolutely uh, affirm that these are legally effective and binding on the executive branch, but also because the effects are indirect does not make them unimportant. I think Kate alluded to the use of federal funding, for example, as a lever in shaping private sector behavior. And you see this quite frequently, the use of contracting, for example. The president as chief executive is in a certain way chief contractor or a contracting officer for the United States. And you've seen long series of orders over the 20th and now 21st centuries where presidents will use executive orders as a mechanism for determining who can do business with the federal government, i.e. those who don't discriminate in housing, if we go back to John F. Kennedy's famous order, or don't discriminate on the basis of gender identity or, or sexual orientation. There's lots of ways you can use the very big federal checkbook to shape the behavior of private sector actors who would like to receive benefits from the federal government. And that's a lot, a lot of people. So, yeah, I don't mean to imply that there's not an important on the ground effect from executive orders in many cases. So one of the nice things that you emphasize there, Andy, talking about the Procurement Act, and I think was sort of implicit in our conversations that there's a wide variety of authorities that presidents are using and issuing these executive orders. And those can also affect whether the, the president is operating through and telling an agency what to do or also has statutory authority perhaps to act directly or constitutional background authority to act directly. This does immediately lead us then to the question of how do courts view executive orders? So you mentioned they enforce them as binding, but how would you describe the legal status of an executive order? To what extent are they actually enforceable by a court and, and in what ways not? Just to follow up that question, I'm thinking about the example order that Kate mentioned. I mean, if somebody had been denied visitation rights, could they go to court and try to enforce a right under the executive order? Or is it a right that exists because HHS did something? Or And wait, can I just interject to say, I, I just Googled and it was actually a presidential memorandum, not an executive order, which I think just goes <laughs> to show as our conversation at the outset revealed, like these are porous boundaries between these different categories. I uh, just wanted to correct the record. I mean, I think it's right that just as we were just discussing, it is typically some intermediary action by an agency that would be subject to either an attempt to enforce or to challenge. Now, EOs themselves are challenged outright, but rarely sought to be enforced directly, right? It's typically the agency action 
that occurs pursuant to the executive order that would be sought to be enforced and sometimes challenged. There's lots of language, again, more pro forma language in executive orders and presidential memoranda that say things like the directive is not meant to create any right or privilege enforceable at law. I'm not sure that answers. In fact, I'm sure it doesn't answer the question. But it just is rarely the case that someone is going to be looking directly to enforce an executive order. Although there is some language in some old cases, like 1871, the Armstrong case that was the companion to the Klein case, which does seem to suggest, and that was a proclamation that was about presidential pardon, which is a different kind of presidential power. So in some ways, you were trying to enforce your access to the pardon as opposed to the proclamation directly. But there is language that does seem to suggest that, yes, some kinds of presidential directives are enforceable in court. If I could just pick apart some of the threads just to make sure that I'm hearing you both correctly. So these presidential directives sometimes say executive order at the top, sometimes they say other things. Whether they are lawful or not does not depend on the name at the top. That has as much to do with custom and tradition as anything else. Sometimes executive orders are carrying out powers that presidents have been given by statute. So Andy mentioned the the Muslim ban order, eventually a proclamation where the president was doing something pursuant to the Immigration and Nationality Act, which explicitly said he could do it. But a lot of orders are not based on that. They just are based on what I think, Kate, you call the supervisory power. Sort of thinking about those, and a lot of them take the form, as we've said, you know, agency, I want you to think about this. I want you to figure out how to enforce racial justice, how to enforce environmental equity, how to protect against gun violence. The thing about those orders is I wonder if they mislead the public. You mentioned the rhetorical function of these things. President Obama famously said in a couple of occasions, you know, if Congress won't act, I will. But it's one thing to do what he wanted Congress to do, which is outlaw certain kinds of gun ownership, and another to say, Department of the Treasury, I want you to be more efficient at doing what the Bureau of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms does. It doesn't seem to have as much punch as is advertised. Am I wrong about that? I think my reaction would be that often that's true. I mean, I think also there are some longer term effects that can happen as agencies do turn their attention to a certain aspect of governance. For example, again, uh, Kate mentioned the uh, racial equity order on day one of the Biden administration. You know, the agencies did come up with implementation plans for that. And the ones I've looked at seem like they took the assignment pretty seriously, actually. Now, again, there's another step after that. You have to implement your implementation plan. But in terms of the durability of executive orders, right? I mean, it, obviously, it helps to have a two-term president where you're going to have you know, sort of the lag in enforcement under the same White House, uh, that makes a difference. Because, of course, a subsequent president can overturn a past executive order simply via subsequent executive order. We saw a lot of that on day one and day two of the Biden administration too. But I think in terms of important effect, it may not be the case, right? The president can ban gun violence by fiat. On the other hand, you know, the president can shape enforcement priorities. Again, DACA was not an executive order, but it did have a very important effect on real people's lives with regards to what the Department of Homeland Security was going to do in terms of how it literally implemented things on the ground. Another example, if we move internally, right, you see very important administrative effects because if we were going to think of where an executive order is the most legally binding, it is on the executive branch itself. So two quick examples. One would be 
efforts to reshape the civil service. We saw a very controversial effort at the end of the Trump administration to move a lot of folks in decision-making capacities out of the merit service, the, the civil service proper, into an area where they could be hired and fired more or less at will, becoming de facto political appointees. Now, again, that's something that President Biden revoked quickly, uh, but that would have a really important impact if it were to be revived. Secondly, uh, an order that you're pretty familiar with, President Reagan's shaping of regulatory review back in 1981 and uh, subsequently affirmed by President Clinton and Obama, the effort to make sure that regulations issued by the departments and agencies are examined and at least de facto approved by a wing of the Office of Management and Budget. So that becomes an important way that presidents can manage the executive branch, make sure they know what's happening in their name. Elena Kagan, when she was still at Harvard Law School, wrote a piece on presidential administration and these aspects of attempting to use the administrative state for positive change was very much on her mind at that point. And she had executive orders, memoranda, regulatory control very much at the forefront of her mind there. I think that continues as a presidential strategy. So, Andy, I think those examples are great because they highlight one feature that I don't think we focused as much on. Before you mentioned the Reagan regulatory review order, we've been talking about executive orders that each administration sort of issues, the Trump order or some of President Obama's orders. But then there are some executive orders that have just been around for an awfully long time. They have that kind of durability. So, Kate, turning to you, why do you think some orders have durability and other ones are maybe a little bit more transitory? Is it just the policy? Are there sort of advantages for taking it, you know, relying on a EO that a prior administration put in place to achieve some goals that are part of presidential strategy? So I'm not at all trying to dodge the question, and I'm happy to respond to it. Can I just step back to respond to a couple of things that Andy said just for that first? Is that okay? In terms of thinking about whether presidents are overclaiming when they are promising that they are going to do things through executive action, and then I think this kind of related point that we were just touching on, which is actually something you raised earlier, Peter, which is you know why sometimes they do something through an executive order or a presidential memorandum rather than just calling a cabinet secretary or other subordinate officials and sort of saying, like, I'd like you to pursue X. And it just called – the discussion called to mind the OSHA test or vaccine mandate episode in which OSHA issued an emergency temporary standard. The Supreme Court struck it down, right? It would have required large employers with 100 or more employees to have their employees either vaccinated or tested weekly for COVID. And and Biden didn't issue a presidential memorandum or an executive order or anything that said agencies, like, go see what you can do under existing statutory authorities to increase levels of vaccination in the country. But he said that, right? He basically said that in a series of press conferences in which he basically said, we're going to try to get more people vaccinated. He mentioned that OSHA was going to be doing this standard, but he didn't do it in anything published in the Federal Register. And yet, in some ways, the Supreme Court, when it invalidated that action, almost acted as though he had, right? There was what felt to me like a gratuitous invocation of the speech that Biden gave at which he announced there was going to be this concerted effort to get more people vaccinated and seemed to suggest that OSHA wasn't exercising independent scientific judgment, but essentially just acceding to some political pressure as though there were something wrong with that. So it just, I think, raises to my mind a lot of questions about, I can well imagine the Biden administration sort of deciding the issue of vaccination is right now so polarizing that it's actually better for the president not to do this kind of big public-facing order 
that then says every agency see what you can do and then have the agencies go off and do it. But in some ways, I think that the decision to, to, to give a speech and to make clear that was the plan, but not actually to memorialize it in an executive order or a presidential memorandum might have been the worst of all possible worlds because he was still really associated with it. So OSHA couldn't just say we independently decided this was important. Again, not that I really think that's required, but the Supreme Court seemed bothered by Biden's involvement. And yet it didn't sort of depoliticize, it, you know, because Biden was so sort of vocally and visibly associated with it. I don't think is going to be kind of a, you know, trans-substantive or temporal answer to how presidents should proceed if they have an array of options in terms of how kind of visible and vocal to be with respect to directing subordinate officials. There may be certain issues on which it is better for presidents to sort of take a back seat, and that the presidential administration that Professor Kagan had in mind with respect to both presidents exercising kind of muscular directive authority vis-a-vis agencies and also really rhetorically appropriating the output of agency processes is complicated in this hyper-polarized moment in which tight presidential association with certain kinds of policies is actually more politically problematic than it may have been for President Clinton. Obviously, that's the the milieu in in which uh, Kagan was writing. So I'm wondering, given what you just said and the the vaccination episode is such an interesting one. And I suppose I should say for those listeners who may not be uh, acronym fluent, that OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration inside the Department of Labor. There you have an action where, again, the Supreme Court turned back what the agency did and treated it as if it were a presidentially induced action because of a speech. Andy talked about the Trump Muslim ban order that was upheld. And the majority took the opinion, the fact that he said many things that suggested that the proclamation might have been animated by something other than a bona fide concern for national security, that it might be tainted by anti-Muslim bias, those statements are considered irrelevant. What's going on? Anyone? (laughs) Yeah, the court seems to have it pretty backwards to my mind in, in terms of when it decides to kind of credit presidential statements and bind presidents in some fashion to the things that they have said. It seemed obvious to me that Justice Sotomayor was correct in dissent in Trump versus Hawaii and that under some circumstances, evidence of intent, like the kind of speeches that President Trump made both as a candidate and following his inauguration, under most circumstances would be relevant evidence of intent if an intent to discriminate on the basis of religion was sort of the the basis of the challenge to the travel ban proclamation, ultimately, initially executive order. And it's not in the OSHA case as though whether there was anything that explicitly legally turned on whether this was a presidential or presidentially induced action by an agency or not. But atmospherically, it did seem to matter. And I don't think that's an isolated instance. You have instances we've now talked about DAPA and DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals and the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans. And the latter program, DAPA, never went into effect because a lower court found that the agency should have gone through a notice and comment rulemaking process. And also just there was no statutory authority at all to create this program. And DACA is what Trump tried to rescind the DACA program, was turned back by the Supreme Court in his efforts to do that. You know, efforts now through litigation to invalidate DACA are still ongoing. But in the lower court case, the, really the district court opinion that invalidated the DAPA program, tons was made of a pretty casual statement by then-President Obama basically saying, Congress can't do this. This is related to what you alluded to earlier, Peter. Congress has failed to pass comprehensive immigration reform and has failed to pass the DREAM Act. And so 
I'm taking action to change the law. And the district court said, huh, you said you changed the law, but the whole point of this was a secretarial memo. This wasn't one of these executive orders or proclamations or any other presidential action. It was a secretarial memo from the DHS secretary just giving guidance about enforcement priorities. And it created the DACA program, but it did not, at least in the view of the Obama administration, create binding requirements that were incumbent on field agents. So this is a little bit in the administrative law weeds, but the district court really seemed to seize on President Obama's statements as really important evidence of the kind of legal status and effect of this secretarial memo. So I do think that there is a tendency to use almost as like adverse party admissions or something statements by presidents that seem to run counter to however the administration is in court kind of defending what it has done. But you didn't see that on display in in the case of the travel ban. Yeah. On the travel ban, I think it is important that it was the third iteration of this particular directive. The first one, the acting attorney general wound up saying, yeah, I'm not enforcing this. This has so many problems associated with it. Now, she, of course, we want to talk about presidential power. Power to remove kicked in very quickly there, and a new uh, acting attorney general came into office very quickly. But the process of revising that directive and making it at least optically look less like a Muslim ban. We can argue about what the substantive effects were, but you know, by the time you get to the Supreme Court, you have other pieces of that directive that justices can hang their hats on looking at, oh, there's exceptions, there's other countries that are involved. And so at that point, you have had the input of the wider bureaucracy, which you did not have for the first version. So I think it does highlight the importance of the bureaucratic peer review process that Kate talked about at the beginning. A lot of these orders either originate in the wider bureaucracy, or at the very least, they do get the benefit of the expertise of the folks who are going to have to implement it after all. And it would be good to know if this is actually going to work once it's issued. So that process, and if we're talking about longstanding executive orders, that central clearance process goes back really to 1933, the current binding Rule on that is uh, President Kennedy's executive order from 1962, setting up a process where the Office of Management and Budget actually has to sign off on an executive order. And the Office of Legal Counsel has to sign off on an executive order to make sure that it has substantive validity, but also uh, is ready to go in terms of form and legality, I think is the phrase. So there is this process built in. Now, presidents, of course, can choose to disobey executive orders. It doesn't always get enforced. But that is kind of the baseline process, the idea that this will be a way to build consensus across the executive branch for implementing a policy. One of the nice things about your book, Andy, that I really enjoyed was you have so many anecdotes going into the detail of that kind of interagency coordination and management process. And I guess one of the features that some of those stories show, and I'm kind of curious about what your view of it is, is it's not just a question of sort of vetting what the president wants to do to make it legally acceptable, but it's also a way of getting everybody like herding cats somewhat from getting administrative agencies that may not be fully on board on a single policy together. Are there stories of the executive order process sort of providing a mechanism for that kind of coordination? Yeah, well, certainly part of the the job of central clearance is quality control, things that should never even get vetted, perhaps. But a lot of it is about trying to forge language that will A, work, but that B, different agencies with different ideas and priorities can get behind. I mean, you do see the process used by certain agencies to try to get a leg up on perhaps a rival agency. And that's something 
that, again, the central clearance process can help police against from the president's point of view, because other agencies actually would like to know agriculture and interior come to mind in the archives, right? It's always sort of aiming for some of the same control and therefore trying to maneuver around each other bureaucratically. But this does come down to parsing of words. You know, will an agency consult? Will it have supervisory control? Will it actually make an appointment to a given advisory committee or will it only be able to suggest an appointment? So there is quite a lot of wordsmithing that goes on, but the general counsels of OMB that I was able to talk to and that I saw reflected in the archival record really made an effort to build again, agency consensus around something that was appropriately an executive order that would actually work and that could get implemented. I think you're absolutely right to say that all the passive aggressive memos that fly around during the process aside, the aim of the more centralized presidential staff in this process is to forge a working consensus where they can. Sometimes they can't. A lot of orders don't get issued at all. And that's uh, worth noting too. Maybe as many as 20% of those that are proposed fall off the process at some point. And just to return to Jillian's really good question about durability, right? There are some executive orders, whether we're talking about regulatory review or classification of documents, or there's an Eisenhower executive order on background investigations of presidential appointees. I mean, there, there are some of these very, very longstanding executive orders that may have been subject to some intervening modification or maybe not, but they have real staying power. And I do think that there's probably some enterprising law students who could do some really interesting work on questions of durability and this kind of stare decisis analog to some executive orders get this become. Obviously, they're all subject to rescission by any president who wants to rescind them, but they don't all have sort of equal precedential weight or value as at least an informal matter. And it strikes me that the ones that we've just now ticked through are really about significant procedures and, and processes. And so, but then of course, like many executive orders set forth procedures of various sorts, but that they are not about a single agency or cluster of agencies, but that they are about the entire executive branch. Maybe that's one. There may be a few indicia that one could identify that unify all of these executives with real staying power. But it is interesting just what a wide range some of them seem to be kind of like they probably should have been speeches. And they were captioned and framed differently. And then some of them really do change the operations inside government, you know, for decades. So the range is quite wide. Peter, just on that exact point, one of the general counsels said, well, yeah, sometimes you create an executive order because the president's going to go give a speech and they need something <laughs> to announce. And she said, and then you think, why couldn't he just hold up a blank piece of paper? <laughs> why do we need to come up with an actual executive order that is uh, going to be rushed and not very well done? But you know, some of the things are driven by events and the fact that you need you know, a president goes to a you know a union annual meeting and needs to talk about how he loves labor so there's an executive order going to do this so sometimes it is driven and they could be frankly just rhetoric but it it's better right to be able to say you're doing something tangible i'm thinking of the fact first of all you know actions that we would now call executive orders go way back early in the republic for sure i mean the emancipation proclamation could have been issued as an executive order but the formal numbering started, I guess, in one of the FDR administrations, and we're now past 14,000. And I often wondered, I mean, in my own limited time in government, which is in the 70s, and we were just in the mere 12,000s, I don't remember anybody going back ever and checking, you know, are we still following Executive Order 2232? And yet sometimes presidents will take great care to 
rescind or amend a prior executive order. And other times, you just have to assume they're being ignored. So can I just give you a little EO numbering trivia? Please. Because it's fun. EOs, of course, are executive orders, just so we understand. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) So 1907, actually, the State Department was tasked with figuring out executive orders. And they decided more or less by fiat that an Abraham Lincoln order from 1862 was going to be number one. And so everything before that, who knows? Ken Mayer, in his book, with the stroke of a pen, says there may be as many as 50,000 executive orders, so we just don't know. They're just out there, but they're not in this numbering, which, as you say, is up to 14,088 as of today, I believe. So number one was from 1862. And then you know, by the time we get to 1936, there is actually kind of a desperate need to keep track of what has actually been issued. The Roosevelt administration found itself in trouble in court from time to time because uh, there'd be competing orders and the first hadn't been rescinded because they didn't know it existed, frankly. And so the Federal Register Act then requires that they be published. That's effective 1936. And so uh, the starts with the Executive Order 7316 is in the very first number of the Federal Register. But yeah, the attention paid to past ones is fleeting, partly because it's a really time-consuming issue of housekeeping. There is a Ronald, two Ronald Reagan orders from 1986 and 1987, where they did make an effort to clear the books of what they thought at that point were pretty defunct executive orders. And a lot of them were temporary commissions that had been created, for example, in labor disputes. But they finally actually updated the name of office management and budget in a lot of orders because it was prior to that, the Bureau of the Budget. So for 15 years, all those orders were referring to an agency that didn't exist until, uh, again, the Reagan language updated the nomenclature. Well, if you want to share trivia that will enable our listeners to impress friends at cocktail parties, the Office of Management and Budget was the successor to the Bureau of the Budget. There was at least a moment's thought to just making it the Bureau of Management and Budget until people realized what the acronym would be. And so, you know, we talk about OMB, <laughs> B-O-M-B for a government agency. Not, Not good. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it called the no-MB, but I don't know about that. <laughs> could be, could be. Before winding up, we've talked about these things being published. There are, again, documents, presidential directives that may or may not be called executive orders. Sometimes they're called national security directives or presidential decision memorandum. I think different presidents have different names for them. These look like executive orders, but they can often be classified, right? So not every direction that the president gives to the executive branch is published in the Federal Register, right? Yes, that's right. And because they're classified, we're not going to mention any of them. No, I mean, I'm not pausing because I can't answer any question (laughs) without somehow revealing classified information. But I think it's right. And I think it's a real transparency problem, but I'm not sure what the solution is. It seems to me that accountability interests are furthered if the president, especially kind of in a sensitive national security domain, commits things to writing rather than not doing so. And things that are classified are will subsequently someday be declassified and presidential records, although they're not subject to the Freedom of Information Act, are subject to the Presidential Records Act, which does eventually place those documents into the FOIAable domain of the National Archives. So I think that as a general matter, despite our discussions earlier about the conflicting incentives in terms of memorializing versus not memorializing these kinds of presidential orders. I think even if we're talking about classified information, it probably is better for these to be subject to some kind of writing, even if we're not going to have full access to it as members of the public. 
the listeners might be interested if they want to see what a national security directive looks like. The National Security Archive at George Washington University has made a uh, valiant effort to collect these over time once they're declassified. And so there is on their site as many as they've been able to collect and make public. And some of these become famous over time, like Harry Truman's Cold War Doctrine, NSC 68. But yeah, most of them will not appear in the public domain, at least for quite a while, though they are very important to the shaping of national security policy. There are occasionally classified executive orders, and those do not appear in the Federal Register, which is a problem for numbering. So around in the Korean War, especially, there were a number of these, and then they had to be put back into the sequence. So you have you know, Executive Order 9000-A dash B, dash C, where they're trying to cram them into the existing sequence. It's not very common. I think these days, almost all of those would go through this national security directive process rather than be issued via executive order. The main thing that sort of strikes me is, as we're talking about this variety and a little bit going back to the both the point about the process internally and the different agencies that are involved and how how much of this, as you put it, Andy, in your book, is a management of the executive branch issue and recognizing the executive branches are they and not, not an it as is often described. And then also at the same time, this idea of some of these orders lasting through time. I guess my question is, what does it say about how we should think of the executive branch, right? Should we be thinking of the executive branch and these issuances as sort of the single voice of the executive branch in some kind of unitary way? Do they show more of the complexity that goes on in the executive branch? Do they maybe hide some of that complexity by putting forward a single document? What insights should we get from them as we think about them in terms of the overall dynamics of the executive branch? Well, I guess I would say that the key element, certainly of my research, suggests that there's no such thing as the unitary executive. It's a complicated, large executive branch, and that makes the job of the president a managerial one in many ways. Presidents and their staffs have to be able to manage bureaucratic politics in a way that push forth their own preferences while utilizing the expertise of the wider executive branch, which again, has lots of people in it and lots of policy positions. So management becomes crucial. Kate, did your White House experience the unitary presidency or was it hurting cats? <laughs> Look, I mean, I think the president obviously sits at the top, but unitariness, whether you know we're talking about some kind of horizontal fashion or vertical fashion has always seemed to me a myth and a fiction. And I do think that Andy's work really illustrates with very tangible on the ground evidence that fact, which I think we haven't really talked about Supreme Court doctrine apart from briefly mentioning the OSHA vaccine case. But in some ways, the kind of premise of a lot of recent Supreme Court cases in the what I would call sort of anti-administrativist vein, to quote much of Jillian's wonderful work, seems deliberately obtuse about the reality of executive branch life and the sort of the very idea that the president is unitary and any kinds of independence inside the executive branch as a formal matter are intolerable encroachments on presidential authority. Like all of that does grow out of a kind of unitary vision of the presidency that I think is just kind of in fatal tension with the reality of the executive branch and modern presidencies. Um, and so I do think that Andy's work is really an important counterpoint to that, whether this Supreme Court is going to be receptive to those kinds of arguments. There's a formalism that obviously doesn't seem terribly interested in all of that that you see on display in those cases. But I do think that this is really important work for many reasons, but including for that reason. I come to uh, an exercise of executive power that I, I hate to implement, which is reporting that we're out of time. Before closing, as always, I want to thank my friend and co-host Jillian Metzger and our brilliant guests, Andy Rudolevich and Kate Shaw. Andy's book on executive orders is called 
conveniently enough, by executive order. Thank you for writing it just in time. Published by Princeton. If you want to hear more from Kate, Jillian already mentioned this. Kate is a co-host with the also fabulous Leah Littman and Melissa Murray of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which will tell you everything you need to know about the Supreme Court and more. My next conversation on Democracy's Chief Executive is going to focus on the question whether courts can be effective in holding presidents accountable. And finally, the University of California Press will be mad if I don't mention that Democracy's Chief Executive is also the name of my own most recent book, which they published last spring, available from fine bookstores and websites everywhere. Andy, Julian, Kate, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us, Peter. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. That was really, that was really interesting. You guys were great. In closing, I want to give thanks to everyone who made this podcast possible. And I'm especially grateful to NYU Law School's most recent past dean, Trevor Morrison, and its current dean, Troy McKenzie, for their encouragement and support. Our independent producers are Buffy Gorilla and Ben Pawson, who are known as Spackle Media. Our NYU Law professional in-studio wizards are Patrick Kelly, Joe Rivera, and Daniel Hernandez Alonzo. My research assistant is Tess Saperstein, The music you hear coming in and going out of our conversation is from a composition called The Constitution Song. It was created by Johnny Butler with lyrics by me. And you can find it on theconstitutionsong.org if you're moved. Uh, If you have comments, questions, or anything you'd like to share about this or any other episode, you can reach me at peter.shane at nyu.edu. To paraphrase Ben Franklin, We have a democracy if we can keep it, so let's work on that. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Peter Shane. Add your voice to the Constitution song. Our founding generation thought the king was a disaster. They fought to make a country where the people would be master. So if you think your country, it isn't acting as it should be, just register and vote. Make your country what it could be. Seize your part in history and make a resolution.